Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. And may God bless to us that reading from his word. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. Help us to remember that it is primarily about you, not about us. And so as we study this psalm together, help us to see more of who you are and what you are like, so that we may indeed praise you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Praise is a mark of the people of God. Christians should be a praising people. We were created to give glory to God and to enjoy fellowship with Him. In the words of C.S. Lewis, praise not merely expresses but completes our enjoyment of God. It is its appointed consummation in commanding us to glorify Him. God is inviting us to enjoy him. This psalm is all about praising God. It begins with the psalmist urging others to join him in praising the Lord. The Hebrew word he uses is one we're all familiar with. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. And the psalm ends with the rigging assertion, that God's praise endures forever. In between, the psalmist gives us a whole host of reasons for praising the Lord. It's worth noting that the psalm takes the form of an acrostic poem. In other words, the first word of each line of the, the Hebrew psalm begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Partly on account of its form, the psalm doesn't divide neatly into sections, but it's remarkably comprehensive for all that. I suppose it's a bit like an impressionist painting. You have to stand back and take in the picture as a whole. 
What does it mean to praise someone? It's something we do all the time. I suggest that it means to recognize the worth of what a person has done or who they are, or perhaps both. Often it's in what they do that we see what people are like. If we are unwell and a friend calls round with shopping, we thank her for her help. We praise her for what she's done. But we may also acknowledge the kindness, the, the, the thoughtfulness reflected in her actions, and so praise her for the kind of person she is. In much the same way, this psalm reminds us that we ought to praise God both for what he has done and is doing, and for the kind of God he is. The focus is very much on God's works, on what he has done, but we're also reminded of his inherent qualities. Before we look at the psalm in detail, I'd like to highlight three things. First of all, this psalm is a hymn of praise. It was intended to be sung, and it encourages us to offer God sung praise. That's something we should do whenever we have opportunity. But God's praise is not confined to song. We praise the Lord whenever we recognize his greatness and his goodness. Whenever we thank him for who he is and what he has done. Whenever we live to the praise of his glory. Secondly, note the context in which the psalmist offers praise. Verse 1, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation. You see, the psalmist wants to praise the Lord in the company of fellow believers. I think that's instructive. We can and should praise God as individuals. We should offer praise in our private devotions, of course we should. But there's a special place for praising God in the company of others. Think of the Apostle Paul's instructions to the church in Ephesus. Be filled with the Spirit, he writes, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to sing and make melody to the Lord, yes. But he also wants them to address one another in their singing. Praise has a horizontal as well as a vertical aspect. I wonder how aware we were of our fellow Christians as we were singing our songs earlier in the service. As we sing, we should seek to encourage one another. We should remind one another how great our God is. We should remind one another that we are part of a family of believers. We should remind one another that we're engaged in, in an activity that will never end. 
Fellowship with fellow Christians is not an optional extra. It's an essential part of the normal Christian life. The third thing I'd like to highlight is this. The call to praise here in the psalm is not made in a vacuum. The psalmist doesn't simply say, praise the Lord, and leave it at that. He gives us reasons for praising the Lord. That's important. It's our duty to praise the Lord. We're commanded to do it. But we do it in response to all that we know about him. In the Bible, imperatives or commands are usually accompanied by indicatives or statements. When we're instructed to do things, we're given reasons for doing these things. We're presented with facts which should help motivate us to obey. And that's what this psalm does. It tells us to praise the Lord, but it also gives us reasons for doing so. It adduces facts in support of the command to praise God. Well, then let's look at the psalm in a little more detail. There's repeated reference in the psalm to God's works. But there are different kinds of works mentioned. I suggest we might consider in turn God's works of creation, God's works of providence, and God's works of redemption. God's works of creation, God's works of providence, and God's works of redemption. First of all, then, God's works of creation. Look at what verse 2 says. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. The works in you here are the things that God has made, his handiwork in creation. The psalmist is pointing to the evidence of God's greatness, which we see all around us. Look at the world around you, the psalmist is saying. Isn't God's creation wonderful? If his creation is so amazing, then how much greater must he be himself? These days we often hear that Christianity and science are incompatible. It's said that science has disproved Christianity. But did you know that the first director of the world-famous Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge University, the Scot James Clark Maxwell, was a great Christian as well as a great scientist? It's reckoned that if he hadn't died prematurely at the age of 48, he would have established the theory of special relativity at least a decade before Einstein. When he was director of the Cavendish Laboratory, Maxwell had the words of Psalm 111 verse 2 inscribed in Latin on the main doors of the, 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 the laboratory. You can still see them there today in a Cambridge back street. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Maxwell was convinced 
that he could see God's glory in the wonders of the world which science unveiled to him. He was convinced that creation repaid careful study because it was the work of an all-wise creator. Does the beauty and wonder of creation move you to praise the Lord? The psalmist certainly thinks it should. The works of creation. But then there are God's works of providence. Verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. The Hebrew word which is translated here as work is a different word. And commentators suggest that it refers to God's providential acts. The psalmist has in mind how God steers the course of history in the interests of his people. He hasn't left his people to their own devices. He cares for them. He provides for them. Last week, when we looked at Psalm 110, we were reminded that Jesus is king and that he is in the business of gathering a people for himself. No one and nothing can undermine or overthrow his rule. Again, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is head over all things to his church. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is governing the affairs of the whole world in the interests of his people. Isn't that something which deserves praise? God's providence operates even at the level of the individual. It takes account of down-to-earth practical needs. In the words of verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. God who made the earth, the air, the sky, the sea, who gave all things their birth. He cares for me. Our Heavenly Father cares for all our needs. He's concerned about our need of daily necessities. In the Lord's Prayer, the Lord Jesus encourages us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We need daily bread just as we need forgiveness. The Lord gives us life and breath and everything we have. Isn't that good to know? And shouldn't it make us want to praise the Lord? The works of creation, the works of providence. Thirdly, the psalm speaks about God's works of redemption. God's works of redemption. In verse 9 we read, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Let's think what that meant for the people for whom this psalm was originally written. Remember how for some 400 years the Israelites lived in the land of Egypt. Latterly, they were oppressed by the Egyptians. They they were slaves. 
They were harassed by cruel taskmasters. But God heard their cries for deliverance, and he sent them redemption at the hand of Moses. The Lord inflicted plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. These failed to soften Pharaoh's heart. In the last of the ten plagues, the firstborn son of each Egyptian family was slain. In the ensuing confusion, the Israelites made their escape. Moses led them to the shores of the Red Sea. When they got there, the waters of the sea miraculously parted, and the people were able to walk over to the other side as if on dry land. But Pharaoh and his soldiers were drowned when they attempted to follow them. The Israelites were free at last. They'd escaped. They'd been redeemed from slavery. This was the climactic event in their history. Ever afterwards, they would remember the escape from Egypt in the annual feast of the Passover. There may well be an an allusion to the Passover in verse 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. An alternative translation is, he has made a memorial of his wonders. As by God's appointment, they celebrated the Passover year after year. The Israelites recalled that they had been slaves in Egypt, but they had been redeemed. They had been redeemed by the Lord. Closely bound up with the redemption God provided was the covenant he made with the Israelites shortly afterwards at Mount Sinai. In what was a binding agreement between himself and the Israelites, the Lord promised to care for them, to be their God. And he laid down how, for their part, they were expected to live as his redeemed people. Verse 9 says that the Lord has commanded his covenant forever. And in verse 4, the Lord is said to remember his covenant forever. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Providing food for his people is just one way in which the Lord fulfills his side of the covenant. And what does he expect of his covenant people? There's a reference to the stipulations of the covenant in verses 7 and 8. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. The Lord's instructions for living are good. They're trustworthy. They can be relied upon. And they are to be obeyed with faithfulness and uprightness. God expects his people to live in accordance with his standards, to live faithful and upright lives. He does so not to cramp their style, but for their good. Now they've been redeemed. There's a right way of living. They are to live under his lordship. The couplet in verse 7 is interesting. The works of his hands are faithful and just, All his precepts are trustworthy. The psalmist is making the point here that what the Lord says 
expresses his goodness and kindness just as much as what he does. What he does and what he says are all of a piece. His precepts, his commandments, his instructions are consistent with all he has done in rescuing and redeeming his people. When after 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites finally entered the land of Canaan, the land the Lord had promised to give them, they were enabled to conquer the land. They overcame tremendous odds. Verse 6 says, He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. By God's will, the Israelites displaced the tribes and nations which were already in the land. God's power was at work on their behalf. Remember how they captured the fortified city of Jericho. All they had to do was to walk around the city once each day for six days as the priests blew their trumpets. And then on the seventh day, they had to walk around the city not once but seven times. And as they raised a shout, the walls of the city came tumbling down. In a sense, what the well-known chorus says is not true. Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. He didn't really have to fight. It was the Lord's doing. The walls of the city fell because the people were obedient to the Lord's instructions. God was demonstrating his power. Rescue, covenant, provision of the land. I've grouped all these actions together and called them God's works of redemption. But we need to ask, how can we apply these things to ourselves as New Testament Christians? Well, I don't think it's all that difficult, really. The Israelites' rescue from Egypt foreshadowed that much greater rescue which the Lord Jesus Christ achieved for us on the cross. If we are Christians, we too have been redeemed from slavery. In our case, it's not slavery to the Egyptians. It's slavery to sin. By nature and practice, we're all slaves to sin. We have a natural propensity to rebel against God and go our own way. We regularly fall short of our own standards, let alone God's. We need someone to rescue us. We cannot rescue ourselves. And that's what Jesus came into our world to do. He paid the redemption price. He paid the penalty due to us for our sin. And if we accept what he has done on our behalf, then we are no longer under sin's dominion. Its penalty has been paid. Its power has been broken. And one day we shall be delivered from its very presence. In the words of a modern hymn, Christ is the Lord who breaks our chains, our bondage ends. Christ is the rescuer who makes the helpless slaves his friends.
If we are Christians this evening, then we too are a redeemed people. We're also a covenant people. Jeremiah prophesied that God would initiate a new covenant which would be unlike the covenant that was made with the Israelites of Mount Sinai. At the heart of this new covenant would be forgiveness of sin. God said, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And also at the heart of this new covenant would be a new dynamic. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Jesus' death lies at the very heart of this new covenant. Didn't he describe his blood as the blood of the covenant shed for the remission of sins? Through his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus dealt decisively with sin and secured the gift of the Holy Spirit who changes us from the inside out and helps us to obey God's precepts. That's how we can begin to live in a manner worthy of God's covenant people. God's new covenant promises us forgiveness and renewal by the Holy Spirit. But is there more? I think there is. Remember how God gave the Israelites the land of Canaan to live in. God wanted them to have a settled home. He wanted to secure their future. And hasn't the Lord promised us as Christians an eternal future, a home with him in his presence forever? We are promised an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. An inheritance that is kept for us and for which we are kept. The Lord is committed to securing the future of his new covenant people. He's committed to bringing all his sons and daughters home to glory. He'll ensure we get there, and he'll provide for us every step of the way. So here in Psalm 111, we're presented with a God who has done amazing things. He has made everything. He's the God of creation. He steers a course of history. He's the God of providence. He rescues and restores sinners like us. He's the God of salvation, the God of redemption. Well then, says the psalmist, When you consider all he has done and does, surely that should make you want to praise him. We should praise the Lord for what he has done. That's what the psalm focuses on. It's in what he does and says that we see what he is like. As we close, let's look briefly at some of the inherent qualities which the psalm ascribes to the Lord. Verse 3, his righteousness endures forever. The Lord is righteous. He's always consistently true to himself. He never acts out of character. He's invariably upright. Verse 4, 
the Lord is gracious and merciful. Instead of giving us what we deserve, the Lord gives us what we don't deserve. Where would any of us be this evening if it weren't for God's unmerited favor? Justice alone would condemn us. We need his mercy. And then in verse 9 we read, Holy and awesome is his name. God's name in Scripture means his character, the the sum of all that he is. You could say that holiness is God's basic quality. He's altogether other. He is transcendent, and he's morally perfect. He has no truck with sin. And not least on that account, he is awesome. And that brings us uh, to, to mention something which should characterize our praise. Because look what the psalmist says, holy and awesome is his name, verse 9. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. See what the psalmist is saying. Our God is awesome. Therefore, we need to fear him. Fear should characterize our praise. It is right and proper to treat a holy and awesome God with the utmost reverence. We don't often speak about the fear of God these days. And I suspect that's because it's not as much a reality in our lives as it should be. But yesterday I was at a wedding in Reading, and I heard an expression which I hadn't heard for years. In his speech, the best man said of his best friend, the bridegroom, Sam is a God-fearing man. I don't know when I last heard that expression, but it is something that should be true of all of us as Christians. Are we God-fearing people? People who give the Lord his rightful place. The fear of the Lord may sound old-fashioned, but it's never out of date. And the wisdom which is built on giving God his rightful place is intensely practical. It's something we have to practice. All those who practice it have a good understanding. At bottom, praise, our recognition of who God is and what he's like, is not something we do just on Sundays or when the fancy takes us. It's something which should involve the whole of our lives. So are you going to praise the Lord as you consider his works of creation, his works of providence, his works of redemption? Are you going to praise him because he is righteous, because he is gracious and merciful, Because he is holy and awesome. And are you going to be characterized 
by what the psalmist calls the fear of the Lord. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us so many reasons to praise you. Open our eyes to see just what a great God you are. Help us to see afresh who you are, what you are like, what you have done and what you are doing and have promised yet to do. So may we live in the good of all these things and worship you in reverent fear because you are worthy of praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.